Hello, everybody, and welcome to What is Your Favorite Color? My name is Mandy Moore, and I am joining as a guest panelist today. And along with me, I am pleased to be here with my friend, Rain Hendricks. Hey, Mandy. And I think you've been doing the show for long enough that you would know that the actual title is What is the Airspeed Velocity of an Unladen Swallow? And uh, I'm here with my friend, Sam. Well, what do you mean? An African or European color? There it is. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, hey, everybody. It's Greater Than Code. And we are here today with Greg Bogus. Uh, Greg may perhaps be best known for teaching his dog to text selfies. And if that's not what he's best known for, then something is very, very wrong with the world. And uh, if you're curious about that, we'll put a link in the show notes. Among his lesser achievements, Greg worked on the developer evangelism team at Twilio for three years. He now leads their developer community team, whose mission is to, quote, encourage and amplify developers. And I am informed by a reliable source that this is, in fact, somehow different from developer evangelism. Anyway, uh, after 11 years in Chicago, Greg and his family moved to Brooklyn last year. That family includes a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Emma, and while Greg is very, very much eager to teach her to code, it sounds like they have to work on some typing first. Anyway, Greg, hi, and welcome to the show. Hello, y'all. Thanks so much for having me. I asked you to come on the show because I was at the Code Newbie Conference in New York City, and you gave the most awesome talk on developers and depression. But we should probably, before that, get to the normal question of... What is your story? Where did you obtain your superpowers? Wow. I think in this day and age, it's probably safe to say that being able to write code is a superpower. So that might not be hyperbole in this day and age. So I was just like super fortunate. For some reason, my parents bought a TRS-80 when I was a kid. My dad's a pastor. My mom's a nurse. So there was not necessarily a professional reason for them to. But back then, the computer would boot into BASIC. And so to use the TRS-80 was to program. And there was magazines, 321 Contact comes to mind. This was like 86, 87. And you could literally copy basic programs from the back of the magazine into the editor there. And you could uh, you know, just start to start coding there. And it was like the most instant gratification you could get with a computer before there was an internet. And I think the first one we had didn't even have floppy drives. It had a cassette drive. So uh, I started programming as a kid. You know, I think some kids pick up uh, pen and paper and uh, some kids pick up crayons and start drawing and programming. I've just always found has been my creative outlet where you can start with a blank page and type something and then make it do something and type a little more and make it do something else. And I just kind of stuck with it ever since. So just out of curiosity, did you pursue a formal education in computer science or did you uh, do the informal, I've just been on computers my whole life thing that so many people in the field <laughs> seem to do? Yeah, I, you know, I pursued a formal education. I went to University of Illinois for computer science, but I failed out. This probably <laughs> kind of plays into the main topic of the today, but uh, I did five years there. So I, I did it the wrong way, right? I mean, this I started in 98. I left in 03. And so that was right around the time when it started being cool to like drop out to start something. I didn't do that. I <laughs> I had no plan. I did it the exact wrong way. I spent five years and still didn't get a degree. And I didn't do it because there was some awesome opportunity. Uh, in retrospect, I just got really depressed and had ADD and didn't know it. Had bipolar, as it turns out, like that tends to come on right around that time, like in your early 20s for a lot of folks. And I was just like crippled with depression, but didn't have those words to describe it. Um, I think that my college experience would have been quite a bit different 
had you know, I had just been more aware uh, of what was going on at the time. I did pursue a CS degree. I uh, was not particularly good at it. I would skip classes in the morning and then just come home and basically just code all night on, uh, you know, I was probably doing PHP mostly at that time. But uh, yeah, I, I pursued but did not achieve a formal education, I would say. Yeah, interesting. That sounds kind of similar to uh, at least somewhat similar to my first couple of tries at college. You know, I, I discovered as an adult that I have ADD as well. Um, but uh, at the time I didn't, you know, I didn't realize it. I just, uh, when I got to college, I realized that, Hey, it's not high school and there aren't hall monitors here and nobody's making sure I go to class. Yeah. <laughs> so then, yeah, I also like you have depression issues as well. And so all of those made it very difficult to stay focused. And I it was not till my third time in college that I actually managed to, to make it stick. You did finish though. I did. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, fortunately my, my depression is more or less manageable by medication. My ADD is not so severe that I can't function at all. And it turns out that, uh, the way that the colleges that I went to are structured, everything is on a quarterly system. So everything is new every 12 weeks, which is just a short enough time span that I could be like, okay, I can do this. That's so brilliant. I, have wondered looking back if my experience would have been different if I, I so I went to University of Illinois, which is, you know, Big Ten University um, semester system, middle of nowhere, effectively, the town exists because the college exists uh, in central Illinois. Just wonder if, you know, if you choose a different university that has quarters where everything's happening faster, or if you choose a university where you're in the middle of the city where there's a lot more stimulus and you're not just bound by the collegiate lifestyle. I really think that we probably underestimate the degree to which the educational environment impacts like students' success. And it does not feel like there's a lot of opportunity to iterate, you know, pursuing a college education like there is, like you have opportunities to iterate when trying to figure out what you want to do for your career, which job's right for you, or, you know, how is the best way for you to get your work done. That's really cool that you took several shots at it and, and kept at it and, and mixed it up and, and got it done. Yeah, I got really lucky too in that I started at a community college. So when I graduated, I only had like $19,000 in debt, which, you know, sounds like a lot but by yeah. modern college standards. It's pretty damn low. So that's, that's awesome. Well, well played. I tried a semester of college and decided that that was not at all for me. Uh, so I've never really gone to college. I found out when I was younger that I have a history of bipolar disorder in my family. And I have never been diagnosed, but I'm pretty sure I have ADD. And the reason I'm pretty sure is that when I read the DSM and it has the checklist, I just check <laughs> off like nine out of ten boxes. <laughs> And then I also, uh, there's a great book called Driven to Distraction, Recognizing and Coping with Attention Deficit Disorder from Childhood Through Adulthood, which if anyone uh, listening is wondering, do I have ADD? What's it like to have ADD? Read that book. It was completely mind-blowing for me from the very first paragraph through the very last paragraph. I had a similar experience with that book. So I failed out of school, moved back home with my parents, thought that maybe the problem with school, maybe if I was doing full-time development, that you know my brain would just operate better and things would be better, but it wasn't. Like All the same problems kept popping up where I couldn't start on a project until the night before it was due and I started dodging calls with clients and whatnot. And, uh, but then like when I get started on it, I could just work for 12 hours at a time uh, without stopping. And finally one night in desperation, I Googled chronic procrastination and, you know, adult ADD popped up 
And I went to Barnes and Noble the next day and I discovered that book and I just sat down. I think I read the whole thing like there that day and simultaneously wanted to jump for joy, but also just break down crying because it felt like it was describing my life and having that outside look on the way I was struggling was just, I mean, I don't like feeling sorry for myself wasn't the right thing, but I think it just brought like the entirety of, of what I've been going through and, and to focus, but also seeing that there were so many other well-intentioned, like moral, like not lazy people out in the world who were suffering through the same thing kind of alleviated a lot of the guilt. It gave me a reason for the difficulties that I'd been having that were, was something other than just being a lazy bastard who was squandering the opportunities that were given to me. My college career basically consisted of me commuting to and from a school because I, in my early 20s, was not at the point where I felt like it would be a good thing for me to go away to school. And that was mainly because I was a not so great kid. (laughs) I was very experimental back in those days and decided that going away would probably make me completely spiral out of control. So I spent my time commuting, but I often wonder if I would have stayed on campus if I could have gotten it together enough to have lived the college lifestyle that sometimes I feel like I missed out on because is instead of like hanging out with people on campus, I hung out with people around my home community that didn't go to school or just worked for a living or didn't work for a living as the case may be. I feel like often sometimes if I would have been around some of the more academic people, if my college experience would have been different. Before we get too far along, I do want to add a caveat for our listeners about self-diagnosis, especially with regards to ADD. You know, a lot of people, when you read the list of symptoms of ADD, pretty much everybody who reads that list is going to go, oh, wait, this might be me. And to some extent, I think that, you know, modern Western culture, you know, is so interrupt driven that it will make you feel like you have ADHD, even if you don't. That said, you know, there are diagnostic criteria that it's not super well understood. I, I have a feeling that there are several, you know, sub-diagnoses that may come out of it at some point. But right now there's like a big list of a, a whole bunch of various symptoms and you can have uh, widely varying combinations of those symptoms. But I mean, the criteria is something like you have X or more number of those things. They affect you in two or more different contexts, like your personal and professional life. And they uh, seriously impair your your ability to function in those contexts. So it's not like, you know, you read the article, you do the Cosmo quiz and you're like, hey, look, I have ADD, give me meds. But uh, it does affect, I think, more people than realize they have it. My own experience was that my dad and my brother are classic ADHD cases. They're hyperactive. Uh, they had various issues with substance abuse and, you know, really impulsive behavior. And I didn't have the hyperactivity and I wasn't as impulsive. And so I thought, well, they have it. I don't. Gosh, I I got lucky there. <laughs> Turns out later, not so much. I, I just have a different variation than they do. We should probably add that none of us here are doctors and your experiences with mental illness and depression, anxiety, and everything that we're talking about here is probably unique. We are just talking about our own experiences and hopefully bring it to the light in the community so that if you are struggling yourself, maybe you should think about going and getting professionally diagnosed because we're not here to do that for you. 
I would give a big plus one to that. I mean, the folks who actually are qualified to make the diagnosis of do you have this or this or this, go to school and actually complete school. <laughs> For years, you know, in the case of psychiatrists, they like first get an MD uh, and go through all of med school and a residency, and then they go do more school so they can diagnose stuff of the brain. So I, I think that the only thing that any of us here can probably speak with authority on is our own experience and the best case scenario of listening to this, if some of what you hear strikes close to home, would be to go set up an appointment with a professional who is qualified to help you through this. Yeah. And I think that's what we can do here is we can talk about our own experiences and we can help uh, reduce the stigma that our culture has around talking about mental illness and, and uh, seeking treatment. Because uh, at least in my case, uh, treatment is very effective and it allows me to be functional when I otherwise might not be. Absolutely. I was just diagnosed myself with depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. And that stems from probably the last 10 years of my life. But um, the main thing that triggered everything was this past January, my mother passed away. Mm. And she was... Um, she was my rock. We were very, very close. And, you know, adjusting to living life without her has not been easy. We spoke every day. She was my best friend and I miss her so deeply. It, it hurts. And the first, you know, couple of weeks I could barely get out of bed. And sometimes I'm, I'm still at that point where it's hard getting out of bed in the morning and, and going about your day. And now that spring is upon us, it's like that I want to go out and play and I just don't have the energy. And, so I started seeking help and I found I've been in and out of therapy since my teenage years and I haven't really ever gotten a lot out of just talking. My doctor recommended that I do something called DBT therapy. Like it's a classroom kind of setting. It's a small group full of like 10 people and we go over concepts in the mindfulness, distress tolerance, interpersonal effectiveness and emotion regulation and it has been super effective. So um, if you don't know what that is, I highly recommend you check that out because I had never heard of it before and it's really done wonders for me so far. Mandy, could you talk a little bit about what was going on that finally made you realize that you needed to seek extra help for this stuff? And like, you know, what was the moment when you're like, you need to do something different here? Sure, I, I'm a single mom of a little girl. She will be eight in July. And um, so she lost her Mimi too. And we both were grieving and it was hard because she was upset and I was upset and she would get home after school and we would just be sitting there and I would be watching TV and she would get on our iPad. And finally I was like, this is not okay. We should not be sitting here crying and basically doing nothing, but yet I didn't have the energy. And then it all came to head when I forgot her half birthday. And that's very important in the life of a child, especially an elementary school age child whose birthday is in the summer. So half birthdays are very important. And she came home from school and she was like, mommy, you forgot my half birthday and we didn't take the cupcakes. We didn't bake the cupcakes. And I was like, oh shit. And I felt like the worst mom ever. Like, I don't, it seems a lot of people will be like la laughing and saying, oh, it's no big deal. But to me, I like felt like I let down her, her school, her teacher. And I just was like, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. It was like the worst thing. So I basically was like, you know, I got to get it together. And, 
I can't sit here. I I didn't take a shower for six days. I had a friend come over to my house and basically say, Amanda, you need to go get a shower. I'm sorry, but you smell horrible mm. because I just wasn't taking care of myself. And I was, I was doing the basics to take care of my daughter, like get her on the school bus, get her dressed in the morning, doing her hair, making sure she had lunch money. And then when she would go off to school, I would just lay back down on the couch and normally go back to sleep. Mm. And when she would get home from school, I would again, do the bare minimum, prepare her dinner or actually order dinner. I'll be honest. I probably did not cook or do anything in the kitchen for eight weeks after my mom's death. Um, I'm pretty sure I single-handedly funded the local pizza shop's income by ordering out every night for eight weeks. Or if I was not hungry, I would um, heat up you know, a can of soup for her because she just loves soup and uh, or a grilled cheese sandwich. But it was the very, very, very basic stuff. And I realized at that time I needed to get it together. So I reached out to my doctor and she referred me to my psychiatrist now. And like I said, this DBT therapy has really changed everything. Like I go once a week for an hour and it has been very, very helpful. Wow. Thanks for sharing all that. That's not. Yeah, no problem. It's not an easy story to tell. No, it's not. But I I, I hope that um, that's why I invited you on, Greg, because your talk at Code Newbie was just like that, you know, sharing your own experience. And if that story just helps one person go seek out and get help, then I'm so happy that I just popped on the podcast today. So um, with that being said, um, would you mind, Greg, kind of recapping your talk from Codeland because it's not up yet? Yeah, sure. Like I said, I I think the symptoms really came out hard uh, during my fifth year in college. And it was really tough because going into my fifth year, I had just broken up with my girlfriend. Um, most of my friends had graduated uh, in four years and I moved in an apartment by myself. And I don't think I want to admit it, but it's pretty obvious I wasn't going to graduate. Like, it's pretty obvious. I was just biding my time and signing up for classes, but there was no real degree in sight. And I didn't know how to tell my parents that because they had paid for it mostly with debt. And, and I just felt like a piece of shit because you know, I knew I was smart enough to get the work done, but I just ended up sleeping all day. Like When I get depressed, the most obvious symptom sounds similar what you went through is that I sleep a lot. And so I was sleeping 16 hours back then. There was one day I slept 24 hours. And really, I mean, the best part of my day was when I was unconscious. That's when I didn't have to deal with just the debt of my life situation that was piling up around me. Same. Um, yeah. And I think the hardest parts is, is that when you go through this, you just tend to go through it alone, you know, in a way that you wouldn't with physical illness. So, you know, if I was having chest pain, I wouldn't be ashamed necessarily to tell people about that. Or if I was having migraines, I wouldn't feel ashamed. But when you're suffering with this stuff, the the inclination is to hide. Um, and I even went so far, I had basically like one or two friends on campus, one of the guys I worked with, and I had stopped going to work and he noticed that I was gone. And he had hit me up a couple times over email, just checking in and I had ignored those. And then one day it was like, uh, it was the afternoon, it was like two o'clock, uh, a weekday and I was still in bed and, uh, he calls my phone and I ignore it and he calls again and I ignore it again. And then I hear this knock on my door and I still don't know how Bill got my, my address, but 
I'm, you know, pretty forgetful about things. And there's a lot of like life maintenance tasks that I think I just accepted are not going to happen. And back then locking my doors was one of them. It was far more likely that I was going to lose my keys than someone was going to try to break into my house. And so I hear the doorknob start to turn. And here I am, like I've been dodging this guy for weeks now. And at the time I was sleeping on this um, bed that was on one of those cheap like metal frames that has the casters on it on hardwood floors and it rolled just a little bit away from the wall and so i just slid into that gap between the bed and the wall and i pulled the covers over my head and i just laid there and i just held my breath and bill walks into my apartment and he just looks into my uh, bedroom and then looks in my office and then he walks out and that's like the best single example I can give of what the shame really felt like. And I think that process just continued on. You know, I, I fail out. I go, I lie to my parents. I tell them I graduated. I won't tell any of my friends what's going on. And basically for like a year and a half, I was living at home trying to do freelance work and just failing all over the place there. And finally, you know, like I said, I kind of Googled in desperation and I found that book. And um, still even a year after finding that book, it took me a year to set up an appointment with a therapist because I think really of the stigma, you know, it's, I don't think anyone really wants to like admit that they have ADD because, you know, that's what lazy people have, right? Like who don't want to work hard. That's what I thought of it at the time. It just seemed like an excuse or a cop out. Finally, though, you know, I was basically about to get fired and I set up an appointment and go through all the tests. And she's like, Greg, you definitely have ADD, but I think you might also have type two bipolar. And my response was basically like, I will take the ADD. And you can keep the bipolar. (laughs) (laughs) Right. If you were having problems with the stigma of ADD, right? (laughs) Right. It goes bipolar, dun, dun, dun. Yes. Yes, seriously. I mean, like in my head at the time, that's like people running through the streets naked, right? Like that's, I think, the media portrayal of bipolar or manic depression, right? And so definitely don't want that one. So type two bipolar is milder. So the the highs aren't quite as high. It's called hypomania instead of mania. And the range of these things is every case looks different, but my cycles are more elongated. So I'll have like four or five days where I'm hypomanic and uh, just have like a lot of ideas and like just moving really fast, talking really fast, like feel like I need to, you know, have all these ideas for projects and I need to like start on them and complete them all tonight because, you know, in part because I don't know if I'm going to have enough energy like by the end of the week to do them. Um, So the net result is like a whole bunch of a folder on my hard drive full of a whole bunch of projects that are like somewhere between 20 and 60% complete. I don't want to say that like that is a symptom of bipolar, but that was something that was happening in my life. That seems like something I deal with with ADD as well is, you know, overcommitment. Yeah, totally agree. And like, and it's just generally speaking, easier to start things than to finish things. So I, you know, I started taking meds for ADD. They helped me focus a lot, but they also, when I was depressed, uh, which would was the majority of the time, you know, I, I feel like I'd have two or three days of hypomania and then like four to six weeks of depression where, you know, life just felt like trying to walk through a swimming pool. And that does not seem fair. <laughs> it, like, <laughs> you know, when I finally go see the, the psychiatrist, like I, about two years later to go see a psychiatrist and he's describing bipolar and he describes hypomania. I'm like, yes, that. How do I get that all the time? <laughs> and uh, I, there's a lot of folks who have bipolar who will not go get treatment because they don't want to give up the mania because it it feels awesome. But yeah, the trade-offs are are pretty it is not a, a fair exchange at all. 
And I think, you know, I finally just reached the point where I, I think like you, Mandy, you know, I knew something was wrong for several years and I just convinced myself that even though I don't know how to fix it, I'll just contain the damage to myself. And after losing or, you know, quitting right before I got fired several jobs after and then being in a job at this web consultancy called TableXI in Chicago, that was just amazing to me. And they, you know, kept me around far past when they should have. She showed so much, so much compassion. I ended up being there for like seven years, you know, and just realizing that I was letting all them down. I just, I had to come to grips with the fact that like, you don't suffer through these things alone. You know, that if you're, if you have depression or anxiety or bipolar, the people in your life go through that with you, whether they know the cause of that or not. And so I, I finally, if for no other reason than for, you know, just for the sake of, of the people around me, you know, got an appointment, saw a psychiatrist, like got on these meds called Lamictal. I got super fortunate there. I mean, my I, I'm in the vast minority, I think, here where like I got on the right meds the first time. Um, the stuff called amygdals has worked well for me and I've taken it for about eight years now and life just kind of gradually got better. You know, it's a mood stabilizer and, and I've been uh, stable for eight years or so now and, and life's been, been really great. But like basically everything after having bipolar was kind of best case scenario for me there. I needed to get help because uh, my family didn't know what to do for me. And rather than deal with me, they kind of started to pull away, which made things worse. And so when I was completely isolated, I was like, well, I want my family back. I really want to be with these people, but they don't want to be around me right now. So I need to do something to get myself better because I don't like being you right now. And the people around me don't like being around me right now. So I need to do something to fix this. Yeah. But um, I've been in the tech community for about 10 years now. And it seems to me that these kind of issues are significantly prevalent in the tech community. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, in the general population, depending on what you read, I, I think all these things are kind of hard to measure, but like you'll see numbers anywhere between one and four struggle with a mental illness to like one in six will deal with depression. So I, I think general population, it's far more prevalent than most folks would think, given the stigma of it and given the fact that we don't talk about it in the same way that we talk about other diseases. But in tech, I don't know of any studies. So like what I'm about to say isn't based on science. So uh, don't take this as any more than one man's uh, opinion. You know, I, I know that for at least me, like I'm just going to spout off some of like, these like cherry pick symptoms of some of the stuff that I deal with. Right. So uh, hyper-focusing. So uh, which most of y'all are probably familiar with, like you get locked in on something and, and you just work on it for a long time. There's uh, irregular sleep patterns, especially like onset insomnia, where it's hard to fall asleep at night and it's impossible to wake up in the morning. There's uh, racing thoughts, which is what it sounds like. There's pressured speech, which is when the racing thoughts try to escape through the small hole in your mouth. There's like thoughts of grandiosity, you know, thinking that you can change the world or thinking that you can solve problems that have eluded everyone else. If you're like a young adult or an adolescent and you are experiencing these symptoms and say you're kind of bouncing around sampling different professions, if you happen to land in the software development world, my guess is that you will feel a little bit like coming home, 
right? Like we will accept the socially isolated here. Our workplaces generally accommodate irregular sleep patterns and inconsistent bursts of productivity in a way that, say, my guess is an accountancy does not or a law firm does not. And if you actually want to change the world, back on the superpowers comment, I don't think that there is a skill that you could have that would more enable you to do that today than knowing how to code. You know, there's the, the Apple commercial that says uh, from a while back that says, you know, here's to the crazy ones because while the rest of the world sees crazy, we see genius because uh, those who are crazy enough to believe they can change the world are the ones who do. And so we really kind of sent out this beacon to the general population for the last 30 years or so saying like, hey, come join us if you feel this way. And so my guess is that the rate of occurrence of some of these things are are probably higher amongst the tech community for no other reason than, you know, our industry is more accommodating to them. Uh, we also know that, you know, like issues like bipolar correlate with uh, increased intelligence and I believe depression does as well. And then I also think on the other side of it, it might possibly be more difficult for folks in our industry to admit and get past the denial if they're struggling with some of this stuff, in part because a lot of folks in this industry have spent a good chunk of their life being the smartest person in the room and being praised for how well their brain works. And their livelihood is dependent upon their brain functioning at a high level. Their livelihood is dependent upon their creativity and their identity is often wrapped up in that. I know mine certainly is. Mm -hmm. And so starting to admit that maybe your brain is malfunctioning can chip away at that identity and, and potentially your livelihood. And so there's, a, at least for me, I think a great reluctance to seek treatment that could possibly screw with the way that my brain was working. Yeah, that jives with my own personal biases, which, you know, I've long thought that learning to program in particular is an activity that selects strongly for ADHD. Because if you have the ability to hyper-focus, you will plow through a lot of stuff that puts a lot of people, you know, neurotypical people off of learning to program, right? The the error messages are too hard. It's too frustrating. The compiler is too picky. I agree with that. Yeah. And there's so much instant, instant gratification in programming. Oh, totally. Yeah. I actually recently went to a uh, group class on uh, ADHD. And one of the things that they kept talking about over and over again is that they don't know a lot officially about ADHD, but you know, the, the really like fundamental basic part of it is that, you know, people who with ADHD, our brains are biased towards two things. They're biased towards immediate gratification and novelty. And both of those things computers provide in spades. Oh yeah. It's so great. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. It's almost like programming is my crack. It's like if I'm in a manic phase, that's the way that I get out. That's what I do when I want to get stuff done. But when I'm depressed, it is in some ways comforting for, for me to work on programming, even though I'm not as productive, because I still feel that sort of Pavlovian thing of, hey, I got, you know, I, I made that test pass or whatever. And it makes me feel like I'm making steady progress. Agreed. And one thing I wanted to mention uh, about self-diagnosing is that it's not so much for me about saying that I have ADD or whatever, because I don't so much care about that. It's understanding that it's there are, there are possibilities for me to improve the way my brain works and improve my quality of life that don't actually require drugs. Uh, I have collected a an extensive set of what are essentially coping mechanisms uh, that include everything from what I do in bed at night 
or more importantly, what I don't do in bed at night, um, how I wake up, how I organize my day as far as tracking my time, what I do when I'm feeling depressed to sort of, I have a lot of things that I do that are almost rituals for me that help me, even though I'm not on prescribed medication. And so for me, it's, it's a lot of it is just being aware that there are things you can do to improve the way your brain works. Rain, could you share a couple of those? Yeah. So I don't uh, use a computer in bed because I have trouble getting to sleep. And if I open up a laptop, it'll be 3 a.m. instead of 1 a.m. In the morning when I wake up, I immediately put my feet on the ground, whether I'm awake or not. And then the rest of my body seems to follow. I don't have coffee past 3 in the afternoon. I have a journaling system on my computer. I specifically use Emacs. And anytime I'm feeling frustrated or confused while I'm working, I write something there. Does the computer in bed thing include a, like a phone? Because I struggle with that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm weak and what I do is I'll use an iPad, but I only read. Same. Um, But I think the light is still a problem. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to experiment with getting a book light and reading an actual book, which, or maybe the Kindle would be good. Yeah. There's also a feature on iPads now called night shift, which shifts the spectrum towards the orange and away from blue. But I mean, there's still some blue light coming in too. Yeah, for me, the point isn't so much what specific things I do. It's you can find things that help you. Agreed. There's a lot of uh, literature on sleep hygiene. One of the psychiatrists that I saw for a while, he was very clear on sleep hygiene. And he, you know, the way he put it was your bed is for two things, sleeping and you know what the other one is. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I think if we get in the habit of reading or puttering around on the computer or watching television while we're in bed, you know, our brains are powerful association machines and it can make it a lot easier for your brain to associate bed with not sleep, which doesn't help your insomnia in any way. Another big one for me is set a time that you want to wake up in the morning and wake up at that time every day, seven days a week, no matter what happened the previous night. Yeah. I'll mention also real briefly that I, I uh, was diagnosed last year with sleep apnea. And so I have a CPAP machine. Now. Yeah, me too. That completely changed my life. Yeah. That actually helps a lot with my uh, energy and focus during the day. <laughs> my doctor said, yeah, your sleep apnea is so severe that you could have died. Wow. So I'm glad I'm not dead. And I actually wake up in the morning and I don't feel like there's been a weight on my chest pressing me down for eight hours. That's incredible. So are there other things in tech that are uh, particularly helpful or challenging for folks with mental illness? You know, I think one thing that comes up a lot is how do you talk to your boss about these things, if at all? Uh, And then I think the other, on the flip side, is a, a question that you'll hear from managers is how do I address these things with my employees or how can I serve my employees well who might be struggling with this stuff? And uh, there's a guy named Ed Finkler who's done a lot of speaking on this. He has a site, an organization called, um, actually it's a 501c3 called Open Sourcing Mental Illness. But he, and he's been speaking about this stuff for four or five years now. And he's just fantastic. And he is really great at addressing a lot of these issues. They published a number of handbooks on how to serve your employees well. He also is a big advocate of something called mental health first aid. It's a course you can take that would certify you in much the same way you'd be certified in uh, traditional first aid that will just help you identify people who might be at risk or like symptoms that might indicate someone's at risk. And then, you know, how do you go about being, you know, a quote unquote first responder to that? 
I think it's also worth mentioning that for as difficult as it is to recruit and retain developers in today's economy, addressing one of your employees' mental health is like probably the biggest switch you could pull to like increase the pro- general productivity of your developer team, right? Like when we talk about like the 10x developer as being this kind of mythical thing, but if you have someone who's working on your team who is you know, suffering through crippling depression and you get them help that helps treat that, their productivity will increase by 10x. <laughs> like, right. It helps with retention too, right? <laughs> 100, yeah, 100%. I mean, I quit several jobs because I felt depressed. And when you aren't willing to consider that your depression might be due to internal circumstances, you just look to the most prevalent factors in your life, which is typically where you work and where you live. And so I would, well, obviously I'm depressed because this job sucks. And so I go to try a different job and there's novel for a little bit. So I'm a little bit happier, but then the same stuff happens. And so I'm like, well, this place sucks too. And finally it was the job where I, you know, after a year and right around that same mark, Finally, I was like, hey, like this place by all measures should be awesome. And I am still depressed. Something else must be going on. And I got treated there and I was incredibly grateful and, and loyal because of the compassion that they showed me and the patience that they showed me. And I stayed there for seven years. And so I think, you know, a couple of things that employers can do just to really help out is to have on hand the name of, say, like two psychiatrists and two therapists, like pick a man and a woman on both sides and who takes your insurance, who is within, you know, 10 or 15 minutes of your office. Yeah. You know, finding that, setting up that first appointment with a therapist or a psychiatrist is like the hardest part because the current system sucks. Like it's all based on phone. ZocDoc is, makes it a little bit easier, but figuring out who takes your insurance and whatnot. And it's just such a great thing for an employer to be able to say, hey, if you are struggling with this, like you don't even have to go to individuals, you can, but just make it broadly known every month, just broadcast. If you are struggling with this stuff, like drop an email to this person, they take our insurance, you can like, take off any time of day you want to go see them. No one's going to ask any questions. Just block off in your calendar, say you have a meeting or whatever, like go take care of this. This is priority number one. And I mean, it could just have a huge impact on your workplace and truly save lives. Like I've lost coworkers to this stuff before, right? And there's few things that employers can do that could truly change the trajectory of one of their employees' lives, like pointing them in the right direction and getting them hooked up with the appropriate help for if they're struggling with one of these things. I'm I'm really, really excited that you're on the show talking about this stuff because it really doesn't get talked about enough. And anything we can do to just let people know that it's okay to struggle with these things. It's in in some sense normal. It's a thing that happens to humans. It's not neurotypical, but it's not it's it doesn't mean that you're bad or broken. Right. Exactly. We, I do want to mention that uh, we do have a Slack channel in our greater than code Slack community for wellness. So if people want to join us, you know, donate a dollar per month to patreon.com slash greater than code and um, discuss it in there. It's a safe place. It's a, it's a really encouraging atmosphere and it's there. And speaking of which, uh, we should probably call out our $10 level Patreon of the week. That would be Dave Tapley. So thank you, Dave, for being a part of our community. Again, you can get into our Slack community for pledging as little as a dollar per month to support the show 
I just want to throw in here that if you, for some reason, can't afford a dollar a month, don't worry about it. You know, if you know one of us on Twitter, reach out to us. We'll get you in because this stuff is important. It is. I feel like, at least with the folks I chat with, it seems like for the folks who are going through these things, the turning point in their lives is the moment they can point to where they say that they talked to someone about it. Whether that was a friend, and I think often it starts there, or whether it was in an online community, like in the Slack channel here. For me, that's what it was because I did not have supportive people in my life. Yep. That's awesome. And so I think that's just so cool that you all have that Slack channel set up and just a place where folks can come in and chat about it. The the end game should be seeing a professional, right? Like, again, they go to school and, and they're... They, they are professionally trained at diagnosing these things. They do it all day long. But if that seems too far, like just find someone you can share uh, your struggles with. And I think what I found, at least in my life, is that verbalizing what you're going through seems to loosen a little bit of its grip on you. Yeah. And there's a lot of incremental progress that you can make, right? You can you can talk with a trusted friend. You can go and read a book and that can give you a framework. And you know, there's with a lot of these issues, there's not like a one thing that'll fix it. Like maybe you get lucky and you hit on a medication that works exactly right for your body. And that's great. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of these things, they reinforce each other. So if you can pick apart, you know, one thing that you can improve, it'll give you that much more energy to work on the next thing. Agreed. And then you can snowball. And eventually a couple of years down the line, you can find yourself reasonably functional. Honestly, one of the biggest things for me has just been awareness, has just been being able to say, oh, I'm feeling depressed right now. Yeah. That's normal. Mm-hmm. It'll pass. Yes. You know? Just just that metacognizance, that awareness of the, the state that my, my body is in has been a huge help for me. Yeah, I'll mention that meditation is also a really useful tool for a lot of people. And meditation yes. can mean as something as simple as like five minutes a day. Do you have any tips for how to get started on meditation? Because I have heard that so many times from from different folks and and haven't been able to pick it up myself but I how did you suck at it so the guy with ADD you know who mentioned meditation you know I I have started meditating probably 20 or 25 times and I have never been able to stick with it long term um, but the nice thing is you can always start up start again yeah. and yeah. you know part of it is realizing that meditation is not this it's not probably what you think of it as, you know, it's, it's not the idea of sitting down and clearing your mind because as it turns out, that's biologically impossible to do. It's what meditation is, is the practice of sitting down and noticing when your mind goes astray and just naming it and sitting with it and being okay with it and bringing your attention back to just being present. Um, and there's lots of ways that you can get to that. You know, I have a 15 minute playlist on my phone that when I, you know, when I do try to practice meditation, that's very helpful. Um, some people like to sit and use a physical focus, like, you know, rosary beads. Those are a great thing. (laughs) Um, there's all kinds of ways you can do this. What's with the fidget spinner craze? (laughs) Turns out you can make them for about a dollar in China. Wow. But yeah, some sort of physical focus can be very helpful. I laugh there only because um, I go to the playground here and all the kids are using it. But like, hey, if it works, like if it if it buys you three weeks of increased concentration before the novelty wears off, like go for it, right? Like, you know, that, and that's like it's clearly a fad that's not going to be at, at the same height of popularity in two years, right? But um, if that works like do that. And I, I think that one of the things, you know, um, you just keep iterating through 
uh, through different techniques to help get a little bit better today with the realization that at least for me, like the craving of novelty means that what works today quite possibly isn't going to work in two months and I'll have to try something new and, and I'll give myself grace to say like, okay, fine, like we'll do something new, you know? I brought that up not in any way to make fun of it. I yeah. actually, right before this uh, podcast, I saw a wonderful article about how they are having an unexpected effect on people's mental health in a positive way. Yeah. And I will actually link that in the show notes because it was a very good read. Yeah, I, I there's a couple of folks at the office who have them and they have them in the meetings and say they help a ton. Yeah, when you said that, I looked down at the one on my desk and I thought of the one that I printed and sent to Jessica last week. So. Very cool. A friend of mine called them shiny placebos, and I said, I don't care if it's a placebo as long as it works. Seriously. <laughs> That's the thing about placebos. They do work yeah, right? 20, like, 30% of the time, right? Fantastic. All right. Do we have anything else that we wanted to uh, hit on before we wrap up? Yes, but I don't think we have time. <laughs> Super fast reflections and go. <laughs> mine is, we've been talking about depression a lot, and... I think if you don't have depression, you may not get what it means for, for the people in your life that do. It's not just feeling sad all the time. Uh, and there's a blog post, or actually a couple of them, by Ali Brosh, who is best known for the Clean All the Things meme. And it's called Adventures in Depression, where she talks about what it actually felt like to go through her life with depression. And it's not being sad. It's just not wanting to do anything or be around anyone. It's It's... Uh, so if you read that and you know people with depression or you yourself suffer from depression, that may help you. I will second that. My own experience with depression is that, you know, a lot of the times it just feels like nothing. Mm. You know, nothing is interesting. Uh, there's not really any point in getting up to do anything. Um, and I might as well just sit here and play solitaire for three hours. So in lieu of a reflection, I will leave you with that. Yeah, uh, same here. I, I just sometimes just feel nothing. And... When I feel nothing, I just kind of see myself like sitting in my office, like looking around at all the stuff that, you know, reminds me of things and reminds me of my mom. And, you know, she was the person that I would go to. And I guess now I just don't have that. And um, I really don't have any kind of support system in place outside my therapist or anything. So I will invite the listeners that if you feel the same way, or if you would want to talk to me, I would love it. And you can feel free to reach out to me via email, mandy at greater than code.com or on Twitter. I'm the Ruby rep. And I would love to talk to anybody who just wants to sit and listen or sit and talk. I'll plus one that too. I'm gb at twilio.com or greggy B on Twitter. And uh, yeah, always happy to to chat uh, about this stuff. And you know, when I think about this conversation, I think the thing that we'll probably I'll remember, given how my memory seems to be fading uh, as I get older here. But I think I think I'm going to remember. You know, six months from now, uh, Mandy is your story, right? And, and you're sharing. And just being brave enough to to share your story with all your listeners and just think back over the pivotal moments in my life, it's typically been someone going first and sharing their story to normalize these things that so many people go through. And I would just encourage anyone who's listening, um, who's, who's suffering through is to find someone to share your story with. And I think that not only will it most likely help you but I think that it's easy to underestimate how helpful that could be to someone else too, just to know that there's someone who's suffering in a similar way that you are and that you are not going through this alone and that you're not 
weird or abnormal because of or these morally things. deficient. Morally, absolutely, absolutely. We have a strong cultural bias against feeling lazy, right, or appearing lazy. Absolutely. The reason I felt brave enough to share my story was because you were brave enough to do it at Codeland, Greg. So the same goes for you. Well, you know, I'll say there, I think the first time that I gave a talk about this at a tech conference, it was pretty hard and I was pretty scared about it. And the second time I was a little bit less scared. What I found is that I grossly underestimated the developer community's capacity for compassion and, and empathy. I have just been blown away by how kind people have been um, after I, I give that talk. And I, I still would say that it's very common for there to be a little voice in the back of my head that says, you know, don't do it. Like, don't share this. They will shun you. Like, why Why would you possibly talk about something so shameful uh, with these people? And what I've just come to realize is that voice in my head is lying to me. And I'm fortunate in having you know, evidence now, or at least a lot of anecdotal evidence to back up the claim that that voice in my head is lying to me. Um, but just know that if you are suffering from mental illness, by definition, your brain is malfunctioning a little bit. Like it, by definition, it's taking inputs and in, running them through a faulty analysis process and spitting out incorrect conclusions. And so if you do hear that voice and it's telling you like, no, you need to go through this alone. You need to keep this locked in. Like just be willing to consider the fact that that voice might be wrong. Thank you for coming on, Greg. We appreciate it. It's been awesome. I really appreciate y'all having me on. Thank you so much. And thank you, listeners. We'll uh, be back at you again next week. 